0: I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is (laughs) evil!
2: need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud.
1: What's in the box? Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and we are here with a Slate spoiler special on Lego Movie 2, the second part, the new film from uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, creators of the Lego franchise. I am joined here today by Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. Nice to see you. And joining us from San Francisco, the Bay Area, by, by phone is Ingu Kang, a Slate culture writer. Hey, Ingu, how are you? Hey, Dana. Uh, all right. So we have all seen Lego Movie 2. Forrest, you and I saw it together a couple nights ago. Uh, we were careful not to say anything about our response to it afterwards coming out. So let's just go around real quick and have a thumbnail response. Uh, yes, no. Forrest, you first.
0: Uh, if it's yes or no or thumbs up or thumbs down, I'd be thumb up somewhat unenthusiastically. I mean, it's not as strong as the first one. I think that's pretty clear. The first one was a movie that no one thought could possibly be good, but Phil Lord and Chris Miller the d- directors and writers of that movie and just the writers of this movie are like masters at working miracles on projects that seemed like they couldn't possibly be good. So, you know, 21 Jump Street, the movie, seems like it couldn't possibly have been good either. And then they made it great. Um, but they only wrote this one. And I feel like this is going to sound like one of those groan-worthy puns of which there are many in this movie. But the pr- the pleasure of the original Lego movie, so much of it was in the world building. And there's just like not as much world building left to do in this movie, and so right, there's I think no that's...
1: get the gang together kind of element that there well, was in the first one.
0: There's right, there's not that, and there's not the freshness of like having all these characters together for the first time. But there's also just like they've already done so many of the jokes about how their hands can't actually grip and, <laughs> grip anything except for cylinders, all of that type of stuff. Just like fun with the silliness of making a movie of Legos is is kind of they've done they've used up those jokes
1: right they do go to a few new places which we can get to yeah. i think in the frame story but ingu what about you um i also want to know about your response to the first one because i don't know if i ever talked to you about it
2: um i would say that more or less it tracks exactly with <laughs> Forrest's response um yeah, I think I was a little bit shocked by how unimpressed by the animation I was this time, just because I've seen two other Lego movies um, at this point. Oh, of course, because there's been Lego Batman as well.
0: Yes. And there's also been the Lego Ninjago movie. Which although I did
1: not see. I but those not see. were not Lord and Miller projects, correct?
0: No. Although, Lego, yeah, Lego Batman movie is, is pretty good. I think um, I think his name is Chris McKay. I think he's a robot chicken guy did that movie.
1: What do you mean a robot chicken guy? Is so, that an animation studio?
0: Like a like a cartoon network adult swim. Robot Chicken was a show on Cartoon Network. Maybe I have no idea whether it's still running, but it was popular in the mid 2000s like when I was in college.
1: And uh, and those didn't have the same spirit, you don't think, as these two Lego movies? They were they were outside the loop somewhat.
0: Well, I mean Lego Batman movie, it ends it, like it doesn't it can't make all of the sort of Lego jokes that the Lego movie made, but instead it just had all of this fun with the character of Batman and Batman's whole history. And I don't think it's as good as the Lego movie, but I I liked Lego Batman movie quite a bit. I think, Ingo, you did too.
2: I love the Lego Batman movie. I think it was like in my top 10 of that year, um, just because it's so hard to make something fresh out of an 80-year-old character, and they managed to do that. Um, yeah, this movie, I... I think the big weakness of like the first Lego movie was the live-action father-son bonding stuff just didn't work for me at all. And this time, I thought they would just get rid of like what was widely agreed to be the weakest element of that movie, and they really decided to double down on it. And I was surprised by how much I ended up being into it. Um, we can get into this. But, yeah, um, I think overall I was pretty Bored like for the first hour, and then when they actually figured, and then when they actually reveal, revealed what the emotional stakes of the movie was, then I got more involved. But it really took you like a pretty long time for the movie to reveal its hand that way. And so for that first hour, I was like, okay, movie pastiche, movie pastiche. What else am I getting here?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Like, the last act of this movie is by far the strongest part, I think. And I think there's a just. Leading right
1: up to the credit sequence, which may be the best part of the movie. Maybe the
0: best part of all, yeah. Um, And I think there's maybe just kind of a fundamental stakes problem where, like, the stakes, what end up being the stakes of this movie, are totally totally at odds with what they appear to be for the first time half two-thirds of the movie or whatever and you can kind of tell where it's going and 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 so you just like one can sense pretty early on that Emmet, the person who appears to be the villain is like not actually the villain and and um you know all of the main characters shouldn't be so um sort of macho and tough and trying so hard to be adult so you like don't actually feel the danger that the characters are feeling for the first two thirds of the movie. And as soon as the movie finally acknowledges that and like the live action part of the movie and the Lego part of the movie um, come in line, it like, Works a lot better,
1: but I mean, if I can just point out, that's a pretty unusual trajectory for a mainstream actiony type movie. Insofar as you want to call this kids movie an action movie, that it gets better toward the end, and that's that's something I sort of liked about this movie. I mean, right. it doesn't fall apart in the third act. It actually kind of reveals its hand, as you say, in the third act and gets stronger. I mean, you could argue that that means it has a weak beginning, but you see a lot more movies with strong beginnings and weak endings than the reverse. The thing I wanted to observe about the frame story in which. Um, if you haven't seen the first Lego movie, you know, you, you cut from this animated world of all Lego creatures interacting to the kind of meta world of the live action humans playing with them uh, is handled really differently than it was in the first movie. In the first movie, as I think Ingo kind of suggested, it's very top heavy. You, you think that you're in the Lego world for right. the entire beginning of the movie. There's not really even any hints about what's happening out in the human world that would that would make these stories appear to be happening to the Lego characters, until suddenly Will Ferrell and his son just get plonked down at the end of the movie in this maybe 10-minute long frame story. um, And... I, th- I actually—it's th- true that there is a big jolt. There's a kind of a perceptual yep. shift that you have to make in order to accept how those two worlds relate together. But I sort of was impressed by the ambition of that first movie in attempting to superpose a human story about a dad and son playing together and learning to play together rather than, you know, the dad being this obsessive uh, Lego collector but actually opening up his world to play with his son the fact that that was appended was a little bit awkward in terms of storytelling, but in terms of uh, the the ambition of the project, I thought it opened it up a lot. And the yeah, way I agree this movie that. does it is is much more typical of a frame story, and that it's interspersed somewhat throughout the movie. So as things are happening in our all plastic, all Lego brick world you'll suddenly get almost dreamlike glimpses of these real life children um, fighting, playing, you know, dealing with the toys in their own suburban house. And so when the uh, reveal happens at the end, which we'll get to about what's really going on in the human world that drives these Lego conflicts, um, you're a little bit more prepared for it and you have a little more of a sense of who those characters are.
2: And there's less of a tonal whiplash between the live action scenes and the animated scenes in this movie, I think they handle that a lot better. And I think that's one of the reasons why it does work better here.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I like the frame story better in this one, although I, I missed the presence of Will Ferrell, who you only hear as an audio off-screen. I guess he was somehow wasn't able to to show up, but he he phoned in, literally phoned in his his voice performance. You do get a great little glimpse of Maya Rudolph as the mom, which is a great surprise. And also in.
0: Brooklyn Prince uh, as the sister. Did you guys recognize her she's from the so Florida much Project? Bigger. Yeah, the yeah. little
1: girl from the Florida Project is now one of the two Lego kids, um, and I, I sort of wish she'd gotten a chance to show her acting chops yeah. a bit more. But uh, but it was nice to see that she's still getting jobs. Uh, all right, so. Let's, go, let's get into um, the specifics of what's happening in Bricksburg, as it used to be called, the Lego world of the first movie, which has now become known in the intervening years as Apocalypseburg because of...
0: Well, because of the thing that we see at the very end of the previous movie. I mean, th- this movie picks up, like, literally the exact moment that the first movie ends, which is when the little sister shows up for the first time with the larger Duplo bricks, and uh, at least in the eyes of... of our boy, and of Emmett, our hero, the the Lego character voiced by Chris Pratt, kind of just starts destroying everything, and so that's what leads to Apocalypseburg, which is essentially just like a spoof of a Mad Max Fury Road type dystopia, it's just kind of like a barren wasteland where everything is serious and gritty, and they kind of just like um, laugh at the seriousness of those Dystopias.
1: But with the difference, of course, that the invading monsters are these cute Duplo right. box with little babyish voices. So, you know, the monsters that they're all running from and that are destroying their skylines are, are things like big floating pink hearts that say, I love you, as they float in the sky.
0: Right. And at first Emmett believes in the cuteness of those things, leading to one of the best, better jokes where he like tries to approach them with a, a heart and they cut to the TV news in Bricksburg and the Chiron just says, insane man approaches monster. <laughs>
1: Yes, the movie is really full of those cl- like quick little cutaways where yeah. you've got to pay attention for for the joke. So, we've got pretty much the same characters with a couple exceptions as as the gang from the first movie. Chris Pratt as Emmett, the eternally chipper construction worker who doesn't seem to mind that he's living in apocalypse land and just happily waves to all the mutated monsters he passes every morning. Um Lucy, aka Wildstyle, as she was originally na- known the Elizabeth Banks character who was really sort of the, the main action hero of the first movie, right? And and is now uh I guess more of a typical Mad Max kind of gritty, brooding character right. who has not maintained the eternal cheerfulness of Emmett. Um, who else is in there? Charlie Day is still voicing Benny the Spaceship Guy, whose only line is, spaceship uttered joyfully over and over whenever he gets to ride in a spaceship. We're missing Morgan Freeman's hilarious character, Vitruvius, oh, from the of first that. one. The kind of wise Gandalf-like character. I think he appears in one dream memory sequence, but otherwise he's gone. Um, who else? Who else is in their uh, main Will Arnett team? as
0: Lego Batman.
1: Of course. And Will Arnett as Lego Batman exploring new depths of of Batman's narcissism. And that that is, you're right. I, I've got to see the Lego Batman movie. I haven't seen it. But Will Arnett's voice characterization of Batman is definitely one of the high points of the series. Yeah. Ingu, can you give us a sense of how the action gets initiated in this movie?
2: So... <laughs> There's a really wonderful scene where um, Emmett wants to show Wildstyle, his best friend, that he has, you know, this unrelenting hope and sunniness about him still. And he tries to show her this through this house that he has just built, and, essentially, She's really put off by, I guess, like his vision of cheerful domesticity and just wants him to brood alongside her. And then she gives him like a series of like brooding lessons where Elizabeth Banks does these wonderful voice performances where she just gets darker and more dramatic. And Emma just can't keep up. And so she ends up being really disappointed that he isn't as dark as she is. And then very quickly after that, uh, Wildstyle and several of Emmett's friends, mostly uh, main characters from the first movie, are all suddenly kidnapped by these alien invaders.
0: the intergalactic naval commander of the sistar system
1: right and this is kind of an ongoing this is an ongoing joke in the movie too right which is that uh perfectly banal things in the real human suburban world get turned into these pseudo science fiction sounding right like the they,
0: the bin of storage they're all afraid <laughs> of the bin of storage
1: and we'll get there but the most horrible place you could end up is is under the dryar <laughs> i forget how they how did they frame the dryar as something scientific i think it's the fiction- dryar oh, system yeah <laughs> And actually we'll the get The dust there, planet.
0: Sorry, I have it here. The dust planet under the dry out system. <laughs>
1: Which is where a few people get exiled later on. But yeah, so once this this spaceship from the Sistar system takes away the uh, some of these figures, we start to blend the human world and the the toy world more because um, there's a portal, which is in fact the door up from the basement leading into the family's house. And once you the pass stair-gates. through this, yes, the stair gate. And once you pass through this portal, no one knows what can happen. You could end up in all kinds of bizarre places, which was what we end up exploring over the course of the movie.
0: Yeah, and from here, the, like, the movie basically splits into two storylines, where our two main protagonists, who in this movie are Emmett, the Chris Pratt character, and Wild Style, the Elizabeth Banks character, are separated. And uh, Emmett meets this character named Rex, who is kind of just a... Rex
1: Vest. Yeah, Rex, you can't sorry, forget yes. his last name, Rex Dangervest, also voiced by Chris Pratt.
0: Right. Um, and I think that name is like a triple pun. It's Rex. It turns out to stand for something later, which I don't remember. And also, I think it's just a pun, on like, he he Rex thing. So he's like this tough sort of Chris Pratt action hero spoof where um, there's like a reference to Chris Pratt's character in Jurassic World who's constantly training velociraptors. So he's introduced as like raptor trainer, I can't remember, like starship commander in a sort of Guardians of the Galaxy type way. Um, but they're all like a little boy's uh, vision of a tough, action hero oh, he's got yeah some time. indiana
1: jones steve irwin kind of elements and the dinosaur touch is kind of nice the jurassic park reference because all of the dinosaurs that he works with are in fact sort of bureaucratic middlemen who are just sitting at computers <laughs> trying to get business done and their their dialogue is all subtitled which is very pleasing we hear them roaring at each other but you know it turns out
0: they're just kind of
1: you know having water cooler conversations.
2: yeah like mondays am i right that kind of <laughs>
0: Um, and so that storyline ends up being about basically Emmett wants to learn to be more like Rex because he thinks that's what Wildstyle wants of him is for him to be tough and and brooding, um, and that's like pretty much it. I mean, they're, they're what there's like a sort of 2001: A Space Odyssey kind of spoof of the like um, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite uh, sequence from the end of 2001, and they. Mess around with raptors, but mostly they're just trying to intervene and save Wildstyle and the rest of the crew from the
2: least evil queen in history. We see this uh, little bar. Barbie-esque blonde doll that's sitting on, like, this weird... I don't even know. Like, a big mess of blocks. And you think that the blonde um, Barbie is going to be the princess, especially because she has a crown on her head. And then it turns out, like, the Barbie is just a handmaiden, I guess, to the actual queen, who is voiced by Tiffany Haddish. And for a movie that's trying very hard to sort of bust out of like what boyness is and what girlness is. It was actually like a, I thought a very effective reveal.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's that f- red herring, right, that the little princessy doll is actually just a servant of the queen. And then there's the revelation that the queen is this kind of crazy, shape- sh- shape-shifting, brightly colored monster whose name as indicates that she can turn into whatever she wants to be. And she's also morally ambiguous. I mean, she sings this long, really funny song about how she's completely unevil and certainly not plotting the destruction of the known universe and ends it with this insistence that she wants to marry the Man of Bats, right? Isn't it? Isn't that the moment that she proposes to Batman?
2: <laughs> I think so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, right away, like, there's a little bit of time before we reveal... They, they keep talking about it as, like, the matrimonial ceremony or something, That like, in some slightly roundabout way. And we're not sure who it is at first, but eventually it becomes clear that she is wooing Batman, the Man of Bats. I don't really know why she's calling him that, but... Um, and then, I mean, the next like 20 minutes or so of that storyline is is essentially her and her crew of people. I guess we could um, spoil who some of them are. So there's like a Twilight spoof, like a, an Edward type who's like a vampire who wants to love you but couldn't possibly actually be in love with you. And that only makes it more romantic or something. Um, they're just like constantly putting glitter on everyone. And it's framed through the eyes of Wildstyle. It's framed as... Everybody getting brainwashed, basically, um, and so we should say another aspect of this part of the universe, the like the Sistar system, is that it's just full of songs. Like yeah. this movie is
1: there's kind of com- kind of a musical. In this universe, there's sort of compulsory participation in every musical number that takes place, and so to resist the brainwashing is to refuse to be one of the people happily singing the songs that crop up in, in every scene,
0: including the song I now have stuck in my head. Which is basically called. This song is going to get stuck in your head. Do you guys still have it stuck in your head? Oh yeah,
1: I did the no. minute I walked out of the theater. I wish I had the, the credits closing sequence song stuck in yeah. my head instead. But this, yeah, this movie's equivalent of everything is awesome. Although that also has several reprises, including a sad reprise toward the end of, of the movie. But this song's new equivalent is the is that this song's going to get stuck inside your head, which. We are led to believe is a brainwashing song. Like once you've you've joined the singing of that song, you've become one of the sparkly, happy, deluded uh, residents of this of this evil sister universe.
0: So this is what this is where we get into what I think is the problem with the first like whatever it is half or two thirds of this movie, which is did you guys actually were you guys actually at all worried about Queen whatever a wannabe or, and and her plan to throw. Glitter on everyone and get them singing pop songs and stuff. Like we're supposed to understand that it's ridiculous, but in order for this part of the movie to have any stakes, we also have to care and think that they there might actually be something devious going on. And I just didn't think there yeah, was. And so I was just waiting for stakes. it to get to the reveal of the sister. Like if you're actually like a pretty sexist person, I think you might be worried during this part. But for me, it was just like, oh, get get to the reveal.
2: Yeah. You're I was right. honestly worried because the world of like the whatever wannabe um, is so over the top girly, and so and wh- whoever goes in there, like Superman, is sort of like very divorced from his entire past and personality. So there's like this running joke about how Superman hates the Green Lantern, but in this reality. They're like next-door neighbors and best friends and then they both have glitter covered all over their bodies and so I Really wasn't sure going into the movie whether this movie was going to be like a send-up of girliness or a um, Send-up of people hating girliness like I Really wasn't sure and I think based on a lot of the deserved sexist uh, deserved criticisms of the first movie of like subtle sexism. I have to say, like, I wasn't really sure what to expect.
0: Yeah. I mean, I should say that, like, I had heard from you Ingo and, um, also slate editor and writer, Sam Adams, that the villain in this movie was toxic masculinity. So I was kind of tipped off to to some of this. And I think that's part of why the stakes didn't work for me during this part of the movie. So right. I kind of knew where it was going.
1: Right, because it, the movie as it's been set up it makes it seem very fun to be <laughs> coated in sprinkles and, and join a musical, right? It's not particularly effective at setting that up as, as an evil outcome. Since I know Ingo, you you are going to write something for Slater, maybe already have about um, about toxic masculinity and also gender gendered toys in this movie and kind of the, the different ways that gender plays out, whether between you know the two versions of of uh, heroism in Rex Danger Vest and and the Emmett character or the different gendered toy styles of the younger sister and older brother who in the frame story are playing with their actual toys do either of you have anywhere to go with that because i think it's something that's quite important to this movie i mean i would say insofar as this movie has a message besides just you know friendship and let's work together it has to do with questioning notions of what you thought um, your particular gender role was
0: yeah i mean i think we should just like briefly spoil um What the ending and what the reveal is, because it's hard to discuss the themes otherwise. So basically, this all the the way that our two main storylines, the Emmett storyline and the Wildstyle storyline, end up um, coming back together is that. Uh, Lego Batman is going to get married to queen, whatever a wannabe. And, th- and this is this is like this kind of what's coded as girly style of plating where you want to have characters get married to each other. And then Emmett and Rex come in because they are viewing this as some horrible dystopian scenario to basically destroy the wedding and that whole universe. Um, and that's when we finally pull back the curtain on what's really going on in our sort of meet space, IRL, live action part of the story, which maybe you can talk about, Ingu.
2: Um, So basically, in the quote-unquote real world, what has been happening is that um, the little girl in the house took her older brother's favorite toys and took them into her room. And so she is arranging a wedding for her brothers' characters and her characters to be forged together in this wedding. And you get this like really great scene of Batman realizing that he actually wants a wife. And um, if you've seen the Lego Batman movie, it's doubly funny because that entire movie is really all about how Batman wants to be alone and what makes him, in his head, Batman is his pathetic solitude that he thinks is like very macho and so here we have this like twist on the character where he realizes the thing that he wanted most of all was actually a wife and then it turns out that uh, because whatever I want to be is also this sort of slightly lonely royal um, they actually have a lot in common and both of them are also kind of like self-involved idiots and they also connect on that level and so it looks to be this extremely happy wedding and then the brother comes in in real life and essentially destroys the entire infrastructure that the uh, wedding is supposed to take place on which is this gigantic cake and so the mom comes in because the kids are yelling. Uh, the mom is played by Maya Rudolph. Maya Rudolph is very Maya Rudolphy in this. And tells the kids, if you can't play without fighting, then you're not going to be able to play at all. And so she orders for all of the Lego blocks and all of the Duplon blocks to be put into the bin of storage. Which is something
1: that the characters within their world refer to as our mama get in, <laughs> which I have right. to say is one of the more effective puns in the in the script.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I couldn't for a lot of the movie, I was like, I don't really get this pun because it's like unclear, like it's so clear that it's going to be something to do with the mom and it's unclear why the characters think. Anyway, eventually you realize it's a much more elaborate pun where it's our mama gets in. <laughs>
1: Aha. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think the characters are supposed to know. That's sort of part of the beauty of the break yep. between the human world and their world. To them, it's just the name, like Armageddon, right? I don't think that they're they're aware of these, these people that are manipulating them. There's not really ever any sense that I mean, now, now we're kind of getting into, like, character psychology of the toys, but it, there's not any sense that they realize that they are toys that are being played with by right. larger beings. They just attribute everything that's happening out in the human world to cosmic forces like the, the StairGate. But where I wanted to get to, though, was talking about this fight club style relationship that develops between Chris Pratt's two characters that he voices. And, there's, and then there's a lot of this toward the end of the movie because essentially the two of them are now alone on their mission to destroy the wedding cake on which the party is about to take place. And... Uh, They're not able to see kind of that there might not be any reason to destroy it. They have now just become fixated on, um, you know, giving this mega punch to the wedding cake that is going to going to destroy everything. Um, And so what happens in the relationship between the two of them, Danger Vest and uh, Emmett? What do we learn about them in that last bit of the movie?
0: Yeah, so basically we we learn that... And this is very convoluted, as the characters themselves acknowledge, and I, and they basically acknowledge that it doesn't really make sense, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't actually make sense, but you guys can try to explain it if you think it do, does make sense. Um, but basically, Rex, it turns out, is a future version of Emmett, who has been set, sent back from the future, sort of like Terminator style, and... Um, he is the older, hardened, more quote-unquote adult version of Emmett. I have to say I really related to this as somebody who gave up many of the things in this movie that are coded as sort of childish and feminine because I did think that they were like not... like What it reminded me of is when I was eight and my mom really wanted to go see The Lion King with me, but I was convinced that I was too old and... Manly, apparently, to go see (laughs) the Lion King. And so I like cried on the car, in the car, on the way to the Lion King. And I really regret that I missed out on so many great things because some combination of my family and my older brothers and society like taught me that I shouldn't like things like the lion King. And now I the lion King's an incredible movie. Wait, so did you
1: actually make it to the lion King or did you watch did. it resist in resistantly with your, your masculine was, stoic I, jaw set?
0: I think I probably liked it. Okay. But I definitely didn't watch it over and over again because I had older brothers. So I was just convinced that like I was, I was way past the lion King and you know, I was more of a Terminator two kind of kid. Um, Even
2: though the lion King also has like essentially no important female characters
0: yeah that's that's true, but <laughs> and also like it's plenty a musical. Of violence and death. right yeah I, right so he's like both um he's code, coded as both older and more masculine, and then Emmett's sort of great realization and to some extent wild styles too, which I liked it's it's more nuanced that like Emmett it's not as if the only macho character is a guy, there's also a kind of macho. Um, female character in Wildstyle who, who is like also convinced that guys need to be tough and broody and stuff um, and so they both like Wildstyle realizes that he that she doesn't like you know super broody Emmett and then they find a kind of uh, natural balance where he's a little bit more adult but not um, he, but he's also okay to like enjoy pop songs and glitter and stuff
2: the reason why all of this happens is because as the wedding cake is breaking apart, Emmet has this opportunity to save Wildstyle and his other friends. And Rex Dangerbus is like, no, what are you doing? Like, you don't need friends, so why would you save them? Which was, of course, like his entire mission in the first place. And so when Emmett is faced with what... Uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, what toxic masculinity actually is. It's not just, like, drawing, like, a bunch of stubbles on his face with a marker. It's actually just, like, being a dick and being alone unhappily. Um, Then he realizes, like, the full extent of, like, who Rex actually is. And so we get this very long story about, like, how Rex came to be, which is basically that Emmett um, was thrown under the dryer or however the dryer yes and basically no one came to rescue him and therefore for years or months or who knows um he was stuck there and contemplating how no one came to save him and therefore he was alone in the universe and that's how he was just going to live his life and essentially when Emmett. Says I don't want to become like you, Rex. Then Rex gets very angry and throws Emmett under the dryer once again, so that I guess Rex can truly exist. Because if the oh, if Emmett doesn't harden, then Rex will never exist. Right. And then, then this comes
1: out, of course, in the disappearance of Rex, which was kind of a heartbreaking moment That <laughs> under the dryer. There's a whole um, con- reconciliation scene eventually under the, the dryer where Rex Vest, the older version of Emmett, Emmett himself, who has been stuck under there for all this time, and Wildstyle, who finds her way there after this kind of superhuman attempt to emerge from uh, the, the bin of storage with the help of her friends. They all have this this confrontation there in which it's essentially affirmed that Emmett should stay as he is, that his unspoiled, you know, joyous, unmasculine or untraditionally masculine self should should stay exactly as it is, and when he has that realization— then um, Rex has to start disappearing back to the future style, as he says, as he's disappearing. And uh, the little kid next to us, if you remember Forrest, was very confused <sighs> and concerned about what was happening to Rex vest and where he was going, because he can no longer exist having not had the past that created him. And, uh, and he fades away before our
2: eyes. It was very much like the first scene of Looper. And yeah. it was very creepy, I thought, for this movie.
0: Yeah, I think. I think that's true. I'm very curious how much of this movie will play for kids versus us as adults. I mean, one thing that I can help but couldn't help but wonder as an adult that maybe will not be a problem for for any children is this, I could not figure out like what the relationship is between everything that is now happening in the Lego world and what's happening in the meat space world like it becomes a sort of metaphorical reenactment of everything that's going on in the soul of this child whereas my understanding of how of what the relationship between those two worlds is from the first movie was that like it's literally just the fantasy that the kid is playing out using his legos right Mm -hmm. but the kid wouldn't invent some elaborate fantasy about being in a Dull and how he needed to learn to be a child again. Right. Yeah, but, that's because because <laughs> the, but I have a response to that. I mean, okay. I, I think
1: there is actually a reciprocity, a joint um, exchange of, of realities and, and developments between the two worlds. And that maybe you see that more clearly in the second Lego movie than in the first. But if you want to say that there is a reality, right, it may not be one that the kids can experience, but there is a reality where that confrontation with the dry R is taking place and Chris Pratt is having this revelation of his doubleness and how he could remain the person that he is, that that in in a sense is metaphorizing, allegorizing, maybe even influencing what's happening in the human world, which is essentially we haven't gotten to this, but the resolution in the human world ends up being that after Maya Rudolph creates our and walks into the room and furiously says, you know, you've got to all put your Legos away in bins, hilariously stepping on a few bricks along the way. Um, that the, the boy starts to feel bad. They both pack up their Legos. They're both sad about it. And then there's a moment that the boy encounters some of the Duplo blocks in his box. And, uh, and remembers that how this all started is that, you know, he his sister was allowed to invade his toys and that they were supposed to play together. I think there's even something the sister says as the mom is banishing them to, uh, to put their things away where she says, I just wanted to play with you. And it's, it's kind of pathetic. And, uh, and I think that might be... The boy's own version of, you know, the revelation that was that was had under the dry by the two toys, which is that, you know, he can let go of some of this need to be the tough kid who has the cool toys, who is not going to play with the pink girly toys of his sister, and he can kind of move into her world as well and make something for her. So he ends up creating a little heart out of Duplo's for her, which harks back to the very first scene of the invasion of the, the cute Duplo hearts um, destroying the, the Lego's world and goes and presents it to her. I mean, isn't that kind of a
2: real-world analogy of finding your more sensitive side? I'm going to interject with what I thought was, like, the best line in the movie, which is that um, the girl doesn't just say, I just wanted to play with you. She says something along the lines of, like, the only reason why I decided to invade your Lego world is because it was like the only way you would play with me and it was this like very i thought self-aware line about how the only way that a lot of girls or female characters are allowed to quote unquote invade male spaces is if they sort of defeminize themselves and act exactly like a boy or a man um which i thought was like actually an amazing line of criticism about like how Hollywood action movies about female characters work.
0: Right. And we get that character, General Mayhem, who changes her voice. Like she wears this helmet and makes herself into more of an actress, action star who has like a intimidating voice rather than being her. We eventually like her helmet comes off and we see her as a more kind of, I don't know, fun, loving, more, Stereotypically feminine, yeah, self.
1: almost kind of a Japanimation style character, right? She
0: has like pastel colored hair and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't want I don't want to sit here and and make diagrams with straws about the exact relationship <laughs> between the Lego <laughs> world and the Meat Space world. I just I just basically I found it more unclear and and a little more confusing in this one. Um, like, are so I it, it was just hard for me to picture like the um, the kid. Uh, actually coming up with this elaborate time travel plot and so on in order to make everything that happens in the Lego world happen. But I think it maybe makes sense if you just accept this premise that the Lego characters also have wills of their own and so... They can uh, make all sorts of things happen that the boy wouldn't make happen in his imagination. I mean,
1: I feel like in the first movie as well, there are plenty of individual interactions happening among the Lego characters that aren't being engineered by the boy from abroad. They might be broadly influenced by the fact that he's, you know, moving them in certain ways or whatever, but they have their own independent, freestanding culture, you know, in which they interact. I've gone way down the rabbit hole on this, the meta- as you can metaphysics.
0: We've gone too far into the metaphysics of the Legoverse. I think, I think we should one, get, pull back.
1: One last thing I will say, though, is that besides the, the boy versus girl, there's also the older kid versus younger kid yeah. scenario. And there's a certain moment when one of the characters, I can't remember who, it might be Rex, says something about... Um, uh, how an adolescent brain is starting to lose the magic of childhood, right? And that that what's going on is that we're seeing a boy growing up, essentially. And the actual actor who plays the little boy has grown up and is now a tween as opposed to the little boy he was in the first movie. And so I think you also see, you know, um, his style of play diverging from her style of play and them having to find some way to reach across those tracks.
0: Yeah, I think the line is, this isn't even happening. It's all just an expression for the death of imagination in adolescence.
1: And who says that? Do you remember? I don't
0: remember. That's the kind of thing I don't know how that's going to play for little kids exactly, but (laughs) these movies have wide audiences, so it's always hard to play to all ages at once.
1: I mean, I have to say, just in a a broad way, I appreciate that this movie tries to be fun for adults and kids without throwing a lot of cynical kind of bones at adults. It doesn't do that DreamWorks thing of just you know talking about old movies that only grown-ups are going to get the references or care about. I feel like it weaves those two worlds together in a way that you could watch this with a kid and you could both enjoy it and have things to say about it afterwards that you had both experienced.
2: I guess my only question then is are kids who are always trying to be adults more grown up actually going to be convinced that what they have currently is this like wonderful beautiful childlike wonder thing like can you really have a sense of like having that um when you're experiencing it
0: i think you have to be a certain age i don't know what that age exactly is but i do think that a lot of kids do connect with that, I mean there are a lot of classic stories. So what what your question reminds me of, Ingo, is like the Peter Pan stories, which are always about preserving innocence against the corrupting influence of adulthood. I mean, as somebody who was, uh, as a millennial kind of generation, hook and loved that movie about the importance of uh, preserving the purity of childhood and imagination. I think I think some percentage of kids, um, once they've certain, yeah, I don't know about three year olds, but like once they've reached. Uh, when did I like hook like seven um then they do appreciate that kind of story.
1: I mean my daughter is 12 and she just loved Mary Poppins Returns which has a lot of this material in it about sort of refinding your childhood and yeah. you know the three kids refinding the ability to play and imagine after their mother has died and they've had to grow up kind of prematurely. I think it's exactly that age of kid actually who's a tween who's the most fascinated by the idea of what is it to be a bigger kid versus a younger kid. And in the end there's something sweet and heartwarming if if you know simple and um you know familiar about the the vision of the two kids playing together and finding yeah. some kind of common space where they can each play in their in their own way and enjoy their Legos.
0: Yeah, were you guys moved? I was moved. I thought it tapped tapped into something like pretty primal there.
1: Yeah, I have to say, and that's what it, again I think it is a strength that this movie gets gets better toward the end, yeah. and that it this the substance that you might feel missing in some of those middle segments where you might think this really is just about you know a world of cute toys kind of singing songs and then occasionally wailing on each other that when it does open out into a larger concept about play and what toys mean to us, there were moments that it reminded me of Toy Story and Andy, you know, and the character of the kid who owns the toys, who becomes just as important as them over the course of the three movies. I have
2: to say I have like this like grudging resentment Usually against movies where the moral of a movie is like you should embrace being a kid because it's so much better than being an adult um, I think that that kind of sentiment is a thing thought up by animators who had good childhoods and <laughs> I Remember distinctly really hating being a kid and I and so like I feel like usually when a movie tells me that being a kid is amazing and there's no better thing because you still have your sense of innocence. I tend to really not like those movies. But I think with this one, for me, it worked because of that gendered element, because so much of it was about how this boy realizes there's more than one way to grow up if he's going to grow up.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think it's the gendered element that makes this um, more fresh and also I think just like more true to a broader slice of human experience, perhaps. Uh, I mean the one other th- level I will say on which this movie resonated with me a little bit and I'm curious whether it did for you guys too, is there's this whole recurring theme of is everything awesome? basically, like uh, at the beginning, they keep insisting that n- nothing is awesome anymore, and all hope is lost and where they end up landing is. Um, everything is not awesome, but that doesn't mean everything's hopeless and bleak. And I just feel like as an American in uh, 2019, all of those lines about how (laughs) nothing is awesome anymore. And also, uh, specifically, I mean, if you I don't know if you guys have gone back and rewatched the original Lego movie since the 2016 election, but uh, it plays quite differently given that it is about a dystopian uh, corporate society in which an orange haired man <laughs> oh, named yeah. President Business. Lord
1: Business, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 like, I think it is working oddly well in parallel with our evolving political situation over the last few years.
2: There's a song that they all sing when they're in the bin of storage um, called Everything's Not Awesome, which is obviously a parody of Everything's Awesome. Everything is Awesome. And I, initially thought, oh, like, this is like, I don't know, the two millionth callback that we're doing in this movie. And then when they have this, like, grand realization that, like, if they work together, they can get themselves out of this terrible mess they're in. I also thought of the Trump administration and how, I guess, maybe there is hope Um I don't know. I don't know like how much of that like Lord of Miller intended, but that really worked for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Again, th- that's all part of the of the end getting better.
0: Yeah. Wait, can
1: we talk about the credit song? Because we just have to. I mean The I, best
0: part of the movie. It
1: was one of the best things I've seen in a movie this year, and yet it's really hard well, to describe without actually playing it. For one thing, the animation changes slightly uh-huh. and it becomes this uh this purely Lego and sort of um uh, toy-like it's almost like a cylinder right there's like a big lego cylinder that turns and each time it turns there's a different sort of scenario from the movie being being acted out in these very simple lego blocks but meanwhile the song that's going along on the on the outside how would you describe it
0: i mean it's basically it's it's so most of the songs we should say this movie is full of songs most of them are written by a guy named um john lajoy or la, la joie, because because it's, it's it's spelled like the French for. He's for Canadian. Joy.
1: He's from Quebec, so I oh, bet it is right. la joie.
0: Okay, um, and they're like they're uneven. I would say. Um, I mean, the first one only has the one song, I think, and that one song became a huge hit and was like wildly. Um, beloved, and I think they're more un- uneven in this one. That uh, Joie is 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 uh, sort of a internet comedian, ironic white guy rapper in the Lonely Island m- mold, and so in that sense makes sense as a hire. But I feel like his songs were a little more uneven, and and then in the closing credits you get a Lonely Island song, or at least it features um, Lonely Island, and it's basically just them rapping extremely toughly and enthusiastically about how awesome closing credits sequences are. And they're like, and it just keeps evolving. So there's a part where Beck suddenly, the, the musician Beck suddenly interrupts to sing about um, Like to sing very profoundly about how the stereoscopic supervisor was Chris Cunnington.
1: (laughs) I believe the line was, I can't believe Chris Cunnington was the stereoscopic supervisor. And so it's just one of those really silly meta songs that makes you look at the credits in a different way. I think there's very specific lyrics about, you know, whose name is scrolling up right then and whether you can keep up with the scroll. And anyway, it's impossible to leave the credits for this movie for a refreshing reason, not because you're waiting for a stinger necessarily, but just because the credits. Themselves are full of fun and, and playfulness and joy.
0: Ingo, did you love the credits as much as Dana and I did?
2: I felt it like it was this beautiful convergence of like the entire um, comic tone that they were going for because the obvious counterpart or predecessor or whatever you want to call it to Lorda Miller um, and their sensibility in the Lego movies is obviously Andy Samberg and The Lonely Island and just, like, that kind of, like, like wholesomeness that they bring to pop culture that isn't sickening for some reason. And <laughs> I appreciated that they brought them in to sort of create this like ultra wholesomeness that is somehow appealing.
0: Very, very quickly. Speaking of the meta aspects of the movie, I will say there's one specific moment in this movie, one other specific moment that I do not understand at all. And I wonder if it made any sense to you guys, which is the part where you very briefly get an intermission and like they flicker the classic, let's all go to the lobby song
1: I didn't get from, that either. I did not like, get that. It,
0: it made me wonder whether the movie was going to suddenly become kind of like a a, a meta movie and there was going to be some even more fourth wall breaking aspect of it. And then it just went nowhere in retrospect. I thought of that after, after the movie and it was just like, what was that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I scribbled a big question mark in my notes when that came along. I don't know quite what it was doing there. It was incorporating some of the characters, including that ice right. cream butler guy, into the Let's All Go to the Lobby song. But it didn't really tie into any larger way of blowing out the movie and making it a meta movie. I mean, this movie was so full of little imaginative inserts and weirdnesses that there were going to be a few that just kind of flew over your head, but that was definitely one of them.
0: Right. Like, we haven't talked about the cameos, which are, like, kind of hit and miss, too, I think. Like, randomly, WNBA superstar Cheryl Swoops is in this movie, um, which was, like, fine, I guess. One of the more inspired cameos was when Wildstyle ends up in some air ducts, and then Bruce Willis is there, and he's just like, I spent a lot of time in air ducts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) was it the
2: real bruce willis's voice i
0: assume but i didn't i didn't double check that
2: according to wikipedia yes and also it's like the kind of cameo that he even he can overcome his laziness to do I mean, I guess as we after
1: we talk about it now, I'm feeling a lot of sweetness toward this movie. It doesn't have the surprise and the kind of pure the purity of the first one, but it also doesn't ruin the spirit of it at all. And it doesn't make you dread the idea of a third Lego movie, which isn't explicitly teased, is there? There's not really a stinger at the end that implies that there'll be a third Lego movie for sure. I guess they're waiting just to see how this one does. So I don't know if that's in the works or not, but if there is one, I hope that you two will come in and talk about it with me some more.
0: Yeah, I'm
2: in. Ingu? Um, as long as Bruce Willis is there, I'm there also. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, our engineer today
1: was Merritt Jacob. Our producer and editor will be Danielle Hewitt. And if you have any ideas for future movies or TV shows you would like to hear spoiled on Slate, you can write us an email at spoilers at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. For Forrest Wickman and Inku Kang, I'm Dana Stevens. Join us again soon for another Slate spoiler special. Bye.